You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we confess our dependence upon you to understand your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its clarity. And we ask now, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher and that you would open our eyes and our hearts, not only to understand your word, but to apply your word and to be obedient to it. May your word inform our thinking and our behavior and our motives and all that we say and do, that you might be glorified through us. We thank you for Christ, who is the light. Help us now, we pray, to understand what that means and the significance of it. In Christ's name, amen. The concept of light is something that we associate with God. When you imagine in your mind's eye what God is like, what do you envision? I hope it's not a physical form sitting on a throne, but if you are imagining in your mind what the manifest presence of God is like, you probably picture something bright, something light. Uh, Words like illumination and splendor and majesty and brilliance and glory are all words that we would use to describe the manifest presence of God. Those are also words that we would use to describe how we would see or apprehend by our senses the God that we worship. There is a fine line between rightly imagining being in God's presence and idolatry. Um, We should never Imagine in our mind's eye what God is like and then worship that image because that is idolatry. But in staying away from that, it doesn't mean that we never in our mind's eye wonder what it is, what is it like to be in God's presence? What must that be like? We have that to look forward to for all of eternity. And God has given us an imagination and He has told us in the book of Revelation and through the prophets what being in His presence is like. And when some who did see visions of God, they saw God clothed in glory, clothed in brilliance and in bright light. So it is okay to imagine when I stand in the presence of God, what will I see? Because we will have eyes to see. We're not going to be blind, deaf spirit entities. We are going to be real spirit beings in heaven and eventually real physical spiritual beings on a new heavens and a new earth. And we will be able to see the glory of God. What must that be like? It will be the brilliance of, of glory. What is in fact, you probably imagine a light that is so bright that you and your own your physical body right now could never take it in, could you? 
In fact, isn't that what God said to Moses? If Moses were to look on God, when God said, show me, let me see your glory, what did the Lord say to Moses? Moses, you can't handle it. And Moses only saw the passing glory of God's hinder parts. And even that caused Moses' face to glow and to radiate that glory. What must the unveiled, full resplendence of his glory be like? It is light like you and I can never imagine. Light that would dissolve our very beings to be in his presence. No sinful creature could see that light. That is how we envision God, and, and I think rightly so. On the, since that is true, the opposite is also true. We often associate sinful things and sinful ways with darkness. Somebody who walks in sin, we say they walk in darkness. Or somebody who doesn't understand spiritual things, they are in mental darkness. We refer to the kingdom of darkness, which is Satan's kingdom. We refer to those who are Satan's children as children of darkness. They dwell in a land of darkness, in a realm of darkness. Salvation is being delivered from darkness into light. Those spiritual realities of light and darkness are things that Scripture uses throughout to describe these two spiritual realities, God and the opposite of holiness and righteousness, and that is sin, iniquity, and wickedness in the prince of darkness. All of humanity is divided into one of those two camps. You are either in light or you are in darkness. Nobody is in the dusk or the pre-dawn. You are either in total darkness or you are in the kingdom of light. Those are the realities that the Bible uses to describe all men, all people, and those two spiritual realities. We see this light and darkness uh, dichotomy or the light and darkness contrast all the way through Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament, you see it. And I would fill up, we could fill up our time here this morning, just me reading the verses that have to do with light and how that is connected to God. I'm just going to give you a couple of reminders just in the Gospel of John. I want you to see how twice, two other times, John has made reference to this theme of light. Turn back to John chapter 1. You kind of had some idea, or we should have had some idea, that John was going to return to this theme of light since he brings it up in his prologue, that is the opening verses of John's Gospel, where almost every major theme in John's Gospel that's developed for the next 21 chapters is brought up someplace in the first 18 verses. John chapter 1, John mentions light or enlightenment or illumination seven times in the first nine verses. Look at verse 4, speaking of Christ, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, and that is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Seven times in the first nine verses, in those few verses, John mentions the theme of light. Look over at chapter 3 real quick. Familiar verses that we have referred to time and again as we've gone through John's Gospel. Beginning at verse 18, these are the words of Jesus. He said, He who believes in Him, that is the Son, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So there in two major passages in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and chapter 3, the theme of light and darkness are contrasted. Those two realities, those spiritual realities, sin with darkness and light with God and his word, his people, and his, his character, his nature. Particularly referring to Jesus as the one who is the light. Now in John chapter 8, Jesus takes up the words that so far the Gospel of John has attributed to Jesus. He takes up these words and claims to be himself 
the, the one who is the light of the world. John chapter 8 and now verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again to them saying, I am the light of the world and he who follows me will not walk in the darkness but will have the light of life. Now that verse, verse 12, which is going to be our focus for this morning, that verse falls really easily into two, basically two divisions. First, there is a statement of doctrine and then there is application. And I love it when scripture does this. A principle of doctrine and then some points of application. The doctrine is this. I am the light of the world. That's Jesus' statement. That is a claim to something. We understand the context. We understand exactly what he is saying. I am the light of the world. That is a doctrinal claim. We're going to look at the doctrine of that. Now here's the practice. The one who is following me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That's the application. The doctrine is that Christ is the light. The application is the one who follows him does not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. So we're going to look at those two, the doctrine and then the application. Let's begin with the doctrine. Keep in mind when and where these words were spoken. Verse 20 tells us these words were spoken in the treasury. Jesus was in the temple. The treasury was not a separate room or a separate building off to the side of the temple mount. The treasury was an area within the temple itself. It was an area that you could go to out in the court of the women where there were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles, basically 13 offering boxes. And each offering box was labeled with what the money that was put into that offering would be used for. Like today we have general fund, missionary fund, uh, benevolent fund, building fund. Same thing in that day. They had 13 offering boxes and each one was labeled something different. So you could go up and you could put your money in there. That is where Jesus was sitting or standing when the, the older woman came up and put in the one cent, the mite. Do you remember that? That's the same area. So in the temple, which is the court of the women, this is where Jesus was at. And he spoke these words next to the treasury. Now the court of, this is how the temple was laid out. There was an outer court, which was the court of the Gentiles. And anybody from all the nations could come into the court of the Gentiles. Then there was inside of that, in sort of a concentric circle, was the court of the women. That was as far in toward the temple as the women could go. Inside the temple of the court of the women was the place where all, all Jewish men could go. So sort of concentric circles. The court of the women was public. It was busy. It was active. This is where most of the people gathered. This is where all the Jewish rabbis gathered to teach. So Jesus was there teaching in the court of the women. Keep that in your mind for just a second. In the court of the women, when these words were spoken, we said, I am the light of the world. So that's the setting for this. Then Jesus makes this declaration, I am the light of the world. Now, what did he mean by that? You and I are somewhat familiar with the concept of light, what light does. Because there are lights in here, we are able to see, we are able to read, we are able to walk around and observe things. I was a little afraid scared that while we were, I was reading the scripture up here for the scripture reading, did you hear the rain that was coming down outside? I was I was th- sort of thinking to myself, what happens if lights go out? And I'm in the middle of reading this. What do we do then? Do we wait for them to come on? What happens if the lights go out? We recognize the difference between what it means to be in a well-lit area and in a darkened area. Okay. So Jesus is a, Jesus is referring to an analogy to which we are familiar. We understand the benefits of being able to see. We understand the blessings of light. And we understand how that contrasts with darkness. But what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the light of the world? How would the Jews have understood that? How should they have understood that? And what did that claim mean? Back in chapter 7, Jesus referred to one of the two significant ceremonies associated with the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Keep in mind that chapter 8 happens associated with the Feast of Booths, just like chapter 7. So the Feast of Tabernacles had two major elements of its celebration, its ceremony. Both of these were highlights of the whole week. Every day there was what was called the water-pouring ceremony, and that all sort of culminated on the very last day of the feast with the water-pouring ceremony. It's in reference to that 
that Jesus says in chapter 7, verse 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and he who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And we looked at the messianic and the, the deity significance of that statement in 7, 37, and 38. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is referring to the second great part of the Feast of Tabernacles and that celebration. And that was the lamp lighting ceremony. Now, on every night of the Feast of Booths, there was this lamp lighting ceremony. There were four, in the court of women where Jesus was speaking, there were four enormous candelabras, these massive torches, uh, spread out throughout the court of the women. And every night, the highlight of the feast, on every night, this was called the Festival Joy, they would light up these four massive candelabras. So when it got dark, they would light up the lights. And one Jewish author says, or one ancient Jewish author says, that when that temple light was lit up like that, there was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that did not reflect the light. This lit up the entire city. Everything around it, the temple was on the highest point of the city. So this massive lighting ceremony where it lit up the temple and all of the gold and all of the marble and all of the rock and everything that would reflect that light all over the city of Jerusalem. And everybody sitting in the temple and outside the temple would look up at that at night and say, ooh, ah. And it would remind them of something. This was the highlight of it. And they would light up these candelabra and they would all dance around singing songs of praise to God late into the night. And they did this every night of the feast. Everybody looked forward to that. Just like you probably look forward to lighting off fireworks this week. Right? You're going to wait till it gets dark. You're going to light off the fireworks and you go, ooh, ah, $15 up in smoke. And then you do the same thing again. Ooh, ah, $10 up in smoke. You're going to do that for a little while. You look forward to that ceremony. That's the same thing with the Jews. They looked forward to it. Now, nobody knows how that lamp lighting ceremony got started. Nobody knows who started it. It was not authorized by Moses, not something that Moses instituted. But by the time of Jesus, it was a well-established tradition that had messianic significance. And it signified two things. There were two things associated with that significance. Every Jew, when they were in the temple or outside the temple, when the temple was lit up and they saw this, they would think of two things, two significant symbolisms. First, they would be reminded of the pillar of fire which led the children of Israel through the wilderness wanderings. Do you remember the whole Feast of Booths was designed to remind the children of Israel of their time spent in the wilderness living in tents, right? Dwelling for those 40 years of wandering. It was to remind them of God's provision, God's presence, and God's protection. The temple lighting ceremony reminded them of the pillar of fire, God's presence, God's provision, God's protection during that time. The, the massive flame reminded them of that. Second, it also reminded the Jews that there was a coming a day when the Messiah would come and that the prophets predicted that the Messiah would be the light to all of the nations. So they standing outside the city of Jerusalem or in the city of Jerusalem would look up to the temple and they would see the temple shining and glowing and radiating all of this light. And they would say to themselves, this is symbolic of what the prophets predicted when they said that the Messiah would come and he would be a light to the nations. Because they expected that when the Messiah came, he would come, he would rule, he would set up his kingdom in Jerusalem, his throne in Jerusalem, he would rule the nations, he would put down all earthly powers, and he would set up his kingdom. And he would be then a light to the nations. And all of the peoples of all of the nations from Egypt and as far away as they could imagine would come and do homage to their king to their Messiah. They would be the center of the world, a light to the nations, and the temple would be the center of world worship. That was their expectation. So the lighting up of the temple and that bright light reminded them the Messiah is coming. And when he does, this temple and our king is going to be the center of everything. And everybody is going to worship and adore him. And Jerusalem will be a light to all of the nations because the Messiah will be here. Let me remind you of a couple of Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. Speaking of the coming Messiah. 
Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, the Lord said, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. You recognize the prophecy is speaking of Jesus, who did that very thing, who opened blind eyes and had a healing ministry. It's describing Jesus as the light to the nations. Isaiah verse 40, chapter 49, verse 6, God says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will make you a light of the nations so that my sanctuary may reach even to the end of the earth. And Zechariah speaks of a time when all of the nations would come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths. And when they did, any king or any people that was not represented at the Feast of Booths, the Lord would punish them with a drought, with a famine, because they did not come up and worship the king of Jerusalem. That was the promise of the prophets. So when they saw the temple lit up, what would they be reminded of? They'd be looking back toward that pillar of fire in the wilderness that led them, provided for them, and protected them. And they would be looking forward to that day when the Messiah showed up and he would be a light to the world, to the nations. And what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. Now, did he speak this when the torches were lit, standing in the temple? We don't know that. We don't know when he said this. might have been even a couple of days after after that event, when the the memory of it was still fresh in people's minds, it might have been that he was standing right there next to a candelabra. And when that was lit up, maybe the previous night, or maybe later that night, it would be lit, and Jesus would say this. He was standing in the court of the women, remember? Where were the candelabras? They were in the court of the women. These things were within sight when Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world. What is he saying? The Messiah that you are waiting for, that you are looking for, that you are expecting and begging God for, I am He. I am that One. The One you are hoping will come and be a light to the nations. That is I. I am He. He's claiming to be the Messiah. They understood that. That's what they got. But there's something else that they would have understood, and you have to hear this with Jewish ears. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, they would have understood something of even greater and deeper significance. Let me give you a few familiar passages to the Jews, and then I will ask you, how do you think a Jew heard this? The first passage would be Isaiah 60, verse 19, where, where Isaiah uses similar language to that of John the Apostle, that John the Apostle uses in the book of Revelation when he is describing the new heavens and the new earth in which all of the righteous will dwell. Isaiah says this, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. It is he, and then Daniel 2 verse 22 says that it is God who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Psalm 22 or 27 verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my defense in my life. Whom shall I dread? If you had walked up to any Jew in that temple on that day and asked them, who is your light? What would the pious Jew have said? A pious Jew would have said, God is my light. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Light dwells with Him. So glorious is He that all of the other lights of the heavens pale in comparison to the glory of His light. Yahweh, Jehovah is my light. And now Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What is He saying? He is claiming deity. This discourse in chapter 8 claimed, begins with Jesus' claim to be God. It ends with Jesus' claim to be God. He says in 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Every Jew there would have understood, the Lord is my light. And now you're telling me that you are the light? Who do you make yourself out to be? Remember, they asked him that twice in chapter 8. We learned that from our preview last week. They asked him twice in chapter 8. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Why would they ask him that? Because he said, I am the light of the world. And that it ends with the claim to deity 
Before Abraham was born, I am. That's who he was. He is the light. He is the light of salvation. He is asking and telling people that need to come to him for salvation and for the light of life. Well, that's the doctrine of it. What was Jesus claiming? He was claiming to be the Messiah. He was claiming to be the light of the world. He was claiming to be God himself, who was the light of the Jews and would be for all of eternity. Now let's look at the application of it. The application of it. Just a, I kind of noticed five basic applications here that Jesus has kind of alludes to or mentions. The first, I want you to notice the assumption behind his statement. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you notice the assumption behind that statement? The assumption behind that statement is that without Jesus, you are in what? Darkness. right? Not dusk, not early dawn. You're not in the presence of a few other lights. You're not in the presence of even candles or, or flickering artificial lights. You are in the presence of what? Without Jesus Christ... The whole world dwells in darkness. Now the Bible paints a very unflattering portrait of unbelievers as those who live and dwell in darkness. Proverbs 2 verse 13 says that those who leave the paths of uprightness walk in the ways of darkness. That is that the path upon which an unbeliever walks in his sin is a path of darkness. Proverbs 4.19 says the way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't even know over what they stumble. Unbelievers wander around in darkness, they fall down flat on their face, and they can't even see over what it is that they tripped. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says, Even though unsaved man knows God, they do not honor him as God or give thanks, but they become futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ephesians 4.18 says, We are darkened in our understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in fallen man, because of the hardness of their heart. Old and New Testament portrays unsaved, unredeemed, fallen men as slaves of sin and in total darkness. Intellectually, they are in darkness. They do not know the truth. They cannot understand the truth. They do not apprehend or comprehend spiritual things in the least. They are in moral darkness. That is, all of their morality and all of their basic claims of morality are nothing but total darkness. They are in philosophical darkness because they reject true wisdom. So they don't even know what true wisdom is. They are in total and complete darkness. Darkness. Isn't it ironic that we live in an age in which people claim to be enlightened? You notice that? We live in an enlightened age. We are technologically enlightened because we can map DNA. We are scientifically enlightened. We have smartphones. We can put people on the moon. We have the internet. We live in an age of enlightenment. Intellectually today we know more than we have ever known before. And spiritual enlightenment? Oh yeah, the buffet of false religion is as, is as prolific and bountiful as it has ever been. And you can have access to any sort of spirituality that your mind or your wicked heart can possibly imagine. We live in a very enlightened age, don't we? What the Bible says about it? Darkness. We live in a dark world. In spite of all the claims to enlightenment and knowledge of truth and knowledge of spiritual things, we live in a world that is bereft of light entirely. It is absolute darkness. And the one who does not have Christ lives and dwells and has all of their behavior, all of their morals, all of their thinking is entirely darkness. That's not very flattering, is it? Not very flattering. To tell that to an unbeliever, they would deny it all day long. Of course they will. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Without Jesus Christ, they are in darkness. Now the opposite is true of us. We who have been saved, those who have been redeemed and graciously saved by God, have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of His Son. 
So Colossians 1.13 says he has rescued us from the domain of darkness. In Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18, when Paul was describing the ministry that the Lord Jesus gave to him on the road to Damascus, Jesus said to Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, Paul says, You are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night, nor are we of darkness. 1 Peter 2.9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As a believer, you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So what do we now have in common with those who are in darkness? Absolutely nothing. That's why the Bible prohibits saved and redeemed people from marrying unsaved and unredeemed people. You can't be unequally yoked. What does light have to do with darkness? Nothing. And you can't find anybody who's in between these two camps. To be unsaved, to be unregenerate, is to be in complete and total darkness. Every capacity and every function of unbelieving man is darkness. Only darkness and always darkness. And on the other side of the spectrum, to be saved, a moment of your salvation, you are in complete light. There's no journey between these two camps where you gradually grow from darkness and you kind of go through the early dawn when you can start to make things out and then suddenly it gets brighter and brighter until you finally arrive at light. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are born again and instantly transferred from one location to another location. That's the assumption behind Jesus' words, that without him there is no light. Now notice also, second, the exclusiveness of his words. Jesus does not say, I am a light. Or I am one source of light. What does he say? I'm the light. The light. Are there any other lights? Are there any other true lights? There are a lot of flickering lights, right? There are a lot of candles in the darkness. There are a lot of people who claim to be light. Your Oprah's and your uh, Deepak Chopra's and your whatever Oprah's you got out there have all types of people who claim to be some source in some way of light or enlightenment to people. Scientists, politicians, all of that claim to be some sort of light. For You can follow them. You can believe what they tell you. Are they really lights? How many lights are there? There's one light. To be without him is to be in total darkness. No middle ground. And by the way, you can't have light without Christ. Do you realize that? It's not like light is something out here that Jesus offers to you when you embrace him. And it's not like man can say, well, you know, I'm enough of Jesus. I'll just take the light. No, no. If you do not have Christ, you do not have light. And you cannot have light apart from him. Nor can you have him and be bereft of light. To have him is to have light. That is an exclusive claim. There are no competing sources of light. There is only one source for true spiritual light and the light of life, and that is Christ. And you must have him in order to have any kind of light whatsoever. To have light at all. Third, you'll notice the requirement that Jesus gives. It is to the one who follows me who has the light of life. That's the requirement. Jesus does not offer or give light or transfer people into the kingdom of light who do not follow him or believe upon him. And following there is a synonym for belief or trust or faith, which we have already seen all the way through the Gospel of John. You can use that, that idea of saving trust. You can use all kinds of different analogies to express that. You could use following or believing or having faith or believing in somebody in that way or coming to Christ. All of those are synonyms for following after him. Following sort of describes the, the constant abiding that believers, true believers have in Christ. 
So when he speaks of following, it's present active participle, which describes an ongoing continual process. The one who is not following after him, the one who is not following, is not walking in the light. He is walking in the darkness. Do you want an analogy that sort of fits the context? Let me offer you one of them. The children of Israel in the wilderness with the pillar of fire, when the pillar of fire got up and moved, what did the children of Israel have to do? They had to pack up the temple, the tabernacle, not the temple, the tabernacle, and all of their possessions, and they had to follow after the pillar of smoke or fire wherever it went. And as long as they followed after the pillar of smoke and fire, then they had light. They had the presence, the protection, the provision of God right there in their midst. But if they wandered off somewhere else and didn't follow after the pillar of fire, what did they have? They had nothing, because God didn't chase after them. Oh, please, please come back to me. It was the one who continually follows in the path of Christ and follows hard after him. That is the one who has the light of life. If it were possible for you to follow the sun all the way around the globe, if that were physically possible, you would always be in broad daylight, wouldn't you? Right? If you started off at 1,000 miles an hour at the equator with the sun at high noon and you followed 1,000 miles an hour all the way around the globe and you did that, you could be in perpetual light. That's the idea. Jesus is saying, the one who follows after me is the one who has the light of life. The promise is not given to unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot have light if they reject Jesus Christ. You must follow him to have the light of life. The fourth thing, the fourth application we notice is the evidence of this life, and that is that those who have it do not walk in darkness. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness. You know what the mark of a believer is? The evidence of a believer is that they walk in the light. The evidence of an unbeliever is that they walk in darkness. Now, does that mean that a believer never sins? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it, be, does it mean that a believer never sins grievously? A believer can sin grievously. A believer can even sin grievously for a time. But the question is, do they stay in that sin, love that sin, hate the light, and love the darkness? That's the question. A true believer will always come out of sin, repent of sin, turn from it, and seek cleansing at the foot of the cross. It is the one who follows after Christ does not walk in darkness. They walk in the light. You and I should have never any assurance of our salvation if we are not walking in the light. How is it that I know that I am saved? If I continue in the light, then I know that I am saved. That is one of the evidences that I am saved. If I continue in the light. If I jump off of that into darkness, I can have no assurance that I'm saved. I said, Jim, didn't you check a box and pray the prayer and come forward an altar call? Yeah, I did, but that didn't save me. You know what saves me? My faith in Christ saves me. And the evidence that I have genuine saving faith in Christ is that I follow him and walk in the light. You and I should never give assurance to somebody else who is walking in darkness that they're actually saved if they are not willing to turn away from the darkness. I've had people sit in my office for counseling who tell me all kinds of sin. They say, I'm not interested in turning away from any of it. I love the sin. I'm dwelling in it. I'll tell you what, though, I'm glad I'm going to heaven because of eternal security. I can continue in my sin and God will save me at the end because I'm one of the elect. And I say to them, you have no confidence whatsoever that you are saved if you continue in darkness. You have a false basis of your assurance. The basis of your assurance is not your view of election or your view of eternal security. It is, am I continually right now trusting in Jesus Christ? Am I walking with him? Then I can have assurance. The person who's not walking in the light has no grounds for assurance. The fifth thing that we notice, the fifth application, is the blessing that is promised. He who walks in the light has the light of life. One of the greatest blessings to those who would believe, those who believe and follow after Christ, is the knowledge that we have the truth, that we know the truth, and we have come to an understanding of the truth, and that we walk in the light, and that no longer do I think in darkness, no longer do I reason in a darkened fashion, 
No longer do I walk in darkness. No longer am I morals darkness. No longer am I in spiritual darkness. No longer am I without wisdom. But now I have the light of life. And those who have followed after Christ know that they have the light. And this is going to sound crazy in our modern day world. But listen to this. If you know that you have the light, you do not have to pretend that you don't have it. And you don't have to fake humility. As if to say, I think I have the light. I mean, I have Jesus. But my mind is open. I could be wrong. It might be that he's my truth and you have some other truth. I have my light and I think I've got it. My mind could be changed about Jesus. But I'm really not sure whether I've got it right or not. But for, for, for me, I'm holding on to Jesus. We have words to describe that. You know what it is? You think it's sanity? Well, it is that too, but it's unfaithfulness. Look, you and I have and know the mind of God on every subject that he has spoken on. Every last one. And you don't need to stand in front of anybody and say, well, you know, I'm just not sure. The Bible says this. I think this is true, but I'm not sure. Once you have come to know the light, have the light, and to realize that you have the light in Christ, there's no need to be uncertain about it. Or to to fake humility as if not knowing something is humbleness. It's not. You stand before a liberal college professor, and a liberal college professor says, you know, you think you know, but you really don't know. And you really can't know if you know anything for certain. I might know, and you might know, and I'm not sure that we really know who knows what we know. That I think we can know for certain. If you say to the college professor, no, I know what I know, and I know what is true. You know what he'll say to you? That's arrogant. That's arrogant for you to claim to have truth. And yet that same college professor will mark you wrong in a heartbeat if you get the answer wrong, right? And if you go up to him and say, you know, you think you know, but it's arrogant for you to say that you have the answer when you might not have the answer, they'll still mark you wrong and fail you in the class. You and I have the mind of God revealed on every subject to which he has spoken. And we can know this for certain, and we can know the truth, and we don't have to muddle through and pretend that we don't have the truth, or pretend that we're being humble by saying, oh, I'm not sure. That's unfaithfulness. He who walks in the light has the light of life. John MacArthur writes this, To the darkness of falsehood, Christ is the light of truth. To the darkness of ignorance, he is the light of wisdom. To the darkness of sin, he is the light of holiness. To the darkness of sorrow, he is the light of joy. And to the darkness of death, he is the light of life. End quote. That is the picture that Jesus is describing in John chapter 8, verse 12. Follow me. You have life. You have truth. You have light. You can know it. You can rest in the certainty of it. And you will have the light of life. There are a lot of false lights in our world. Okay? Mentioned a few of them. Politicians claim to have light. And and it's not just a, you know, it's not a screed against politicians. False religious teachers, false religions, um, philosophers, college professors, uh, the media, the cultural lights, quote unquote lights, uh, Oprah, Chopra, and all the others who promise to be sources of light. There are a lot of false lights in our world. They're nothing but flickering candles in the dark, by the way. But they promise you things that they can never deliver. They promise you light. Eventually they will go out. They will cease to be. It's amazing to me that people follow after them and believe them and think that they're actually sources of light when they're not. Have you ever noticed when it gets dark outside how the, the moths and the bugs come out at night? You notice that? And what do they gravitate toward? What do they go toward? 
They go toward the lamp on your porch. They go toward a flashlight or a lantern or a flame or a candle or something. And some of those bugs seem almost irresistibly drawn to those sources of light. And they will get sometimes even close enough to kill themselves. They will even come so close to the flame as to scorch themselves and die. So when you put out the candle, you see a bunch of dead bugs all the way around the candle like that. Have you ever wondered why those bugs don't come out during the daytime? If it's light that they're after, when do you think they would be out? You would think that they would come out in broad daylight. When the brightest light possible is high in the sky, you would think you would see moths and bugs flying around and basking in the light of day. But you know what the light and the bugs and the moths, you know what they really like? They really like darkness, and they go after every source of artificial light imaginable. They are much like men and women and unredeemed people today. They love darkness, but they pursue every source of artificial light imaginable. But when you shine the true light of the true gospel and the truth of God's word in their eyes, what do they do? They run and hide like moths in the daytime. They're not interested in the true light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and the one who follows him does not walk in darkness but has the light of life. That is the promise to those who repent and put their trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you and we can rejoice in the goodness of your Son. And in his nature, there is no analogy that can, in one analogy, capture all that Christ is to us and all that he has done for us. We thank you for the promises of your word. And we thank you that for those who are saved, you have delivered us from darkness. You have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into your son's kingdom. And that that transfer is complete. It is total. It is eternal. It is everlasting. It is certain and secure. And nothing can happen which threatens our salvation or our security. Thank you that that confidence and assurance rests toward those who are yours, who continue to follow Christ and walk in the light. Thank you for giving us light in your word and in your son, which is the cure for a very darkened condition in which we found ourselves before we found Christ. Thank you for opening our eyes and giving us eyes to see. Thank you for quickening our hearts to obey your truth. Thank you for giving us light and then giving us the capacity to follow after it. We thank you in your son's name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.